Summer has arrived, and with that, so has the June edition of Monocle magazine, where inside you'll find interviews and in-depth reports with the future of transport at the fore. And if you've got your hands on a copy, you'll already know that one of the figures beaming out from this month's pages is the CEO of Siemens Mobility, Michael Pater. An engineer by training, Mr. Pater joined the Siemens family almost three decades ago before taking the helm of the company in 2018. With so much experience on the inside of the ubiquitous German brand, he joins me today from Cairo to tell us exactly where Siemens Mobility will be taking us next and the pioneering innovation required to get there. As the world turns away from air travel, how does rail travel capitalize on its status as the sustainable alternative? How do we design the trains and routes of the future to ensure the balance of human and digital touch is just right? And as night trains make their return across Europe, is there an opportunity to reinstate them as primary modes of travel, business, and otherwise? From Zurich, I'm Tyler Brule, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. Mr. Peter, fantastic to talk to you. We catch you in Cairo uh, today, but we will, we'll come back to, to that topic uh, in a moment. I want to start, though, by saying I am a completely paid-up rail fan. Maybe not as big a fan as I used to be, but you would have found me back in Montreal in the early 1970s going to meet the local commuter trains. I'm a huge believer, like much of Monocle is as well. We're big believers in rail travel. So first question is, do you have, and let's put competition to one side, do you have the easiest job in the world at the moment? Because everyone loves trains and and planes are suddenly the bad guys. Do I have the easiest job? I don't know. I have the most fun job that I can definitely say because we have a course to fulfill to provide clean transportation and there is huge changes coming up in our industry. We like to compare ourselves to see the potential with the telephone industry where much of rail industry hasn't been innovating for 30 years. So we're basically, you know, with these telephones, with a rotating disc, when you compare the technology, and we're now going to voice over IP in one step. So the excitement is huge. The gains in efficiency are huge. And, and I think you will see that also the um, opportunities to travel differently will be huge in the upcoming only 10 years. You see the changes in the cities uh, when systems become demand responsive and, and you have a different usage of the city, basically. When you, when you leave the train station, you'll see different types of mobility. But it also holds true for the long distance traveling, I think. If you look at night trains and all these exciting things coming up, then it's challenging. We need the best people of the world uh, with us, but it's a fun job. Okay, great that you've got the job that you love. But is the situation easier? If we even go back seven or eight years ago, before there were the same pressures that we saw, pressures you know, coming from not just at, at a government level, whether it's municipal or federal, but also consumer pressure as well, looking at environmental concerns. There, there just wasn't, you could say, that sort of level of advocacy, the cry for sustainability. So now when you, when you go out and talk to governments or, of course, the private sector, the conversation is, is an easier one now, I would imagine. That is certainly true. If you think eight years back, I don't think anybody was really seriously thinking about global warming. Today's sustainability is the challenge. I think 10 years back, people were talking about how to move people sustainably in the sense of uh, cities are being completely clocked and the smog is a, is a danger to our health. 
cities competing with each other, offering companies uh, good locations so that people want to move there. This was all there. But the element of really fight global warning and how can we move in the future wasn't there. And and I think you can see this now with COVID, if you see where the stimulus money is going. I mean, it's it's still for infrastructure projects. Governments pay tax dollars, then they they want to see that money staying in the in the country and they want to do something that's good for everybody's infrastructure. But there's usually two more requirements now. They they say it shouldn't be just concrete, it should be intelligent infrastructure, it should create good job opportunities for people. And then the third one is it should be something we are proud of in five years when we look back in the sense of have we come closer to our sustainability targets and our CO2 reduction targets. So a lot of these stimulus packages are actually going into the from my perspective, into the right direction. It's certainly true that this is providing a huge dynamic to our market and a, and a huge excitement. I'm a frequent user of Stadelhofen uh, here in Zurich and, of course, the, the Hauptbahnhof, which is under transformation, and, and I use SBB a lot. I use Deutsche Bahn uh, a lot. And, and so I get the digital station. At the same time, though, I also want a human station as well. So I get it. I mean, of course, every consultant that you work with wants to slap the word digital on front of everything to make it seem modern and fresh, but also... There's a human component as well, which digital has brought us. And suddenly digital has created a problem because rail travel used to be great maybe 15 years ago. People might have spoken a bit loud. They might have been laughing. uh, But you didn't have this assault of technology, which actually suddenly makes a compressed environment a rather annoying one to travel in from time to time. And of course, I mean, maybe on Deutsche Bahn and certainly SBB, other passengers will tell you off. Is that also part of the the human thinking um, that goes into this as well, what that future experience is like? Because not all countries are like SPB. They don't all have the, uh, these ruotsone, these silent wagons. Is that also something you, you think about as we all kind of run away with digital? How much does the human factor still come into this? Absolutely. I mean, this noise pollution is, is most definitely an issue in the trains. And of course, if you are asked to provide a new train, actually the requirements for communication increase every time. So basically, Wi-Fi is a must on the train. Um, we code our new trains, the windows, we code them specifically so that 4G or 5G connections can enter the train better. But if you look at studies of train interiors in the future, they do go away from these huge areas of common seating more into smaller individual areas. In general, we see with new trains, even on the on the new Velaros ordered by Deutsche Bahn, we see that there is a tendency to go towards smaller areas of various usage. So uh, specified areas, like I said, for children playing, for people working, for uh, people uh, eating. So the, the idea of having this one train and you enter like in a, in a metro train and you can see the end of the train in the one direction and the other one. This is being abandoned a little bit because the usage is getting more variety in there and you don't want to be disturbed by each other too much. So I think there's the idea of going to different zones. And this is maybe the exciting bit as well, because for a while now, we've seen trains trying to mimic air travel. And I think many people who really have always loved rail travel, there's something about the occasion of going to the dining car because there's not a dining car when you're flying. Maybe you may or may not want tablecloth service. I don't agree with Amtrak taking away tablecloths. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion. There, There is a certain celebration. There is something that happens and that you can do on rail. So what it sounds like you're saying is that also, okay, yes, rail is going to go faster and it's going to be better connected. It's going to be more digital, all of these things. But maybe it's also a little bit about getting back to the roots. It seems like there is this embrace and really appreciating rail for for what it is from a design point of view. 
Yeah, I heard a, a very interesting speech the other day from a board member of Deutsche Bahn, and the person said, uh, what's the difference between a car and, uh, and a train? And the biggest difference is you have your hands free and you can do things. And you ask the same question, what's the difference between an airplane and a, and a train? And it's uh, you can get up and you can, can move around. So I think if you want to win uh, building trains, if you want to win this battle of who takes what type of transportation, I think that's the strength of a train you have to leverage, that you can do things in the train and that you, you have to provide. I think you're touching another important point, and that's actually what I see with the nostalgia of night trains. These night trains, in a certain way, they came out in the market in a perfect moment because I do see that through Corona, we are all anxious to travel again, but we also found a new appreciation for, for distance and having a feeling of what we're actually doing. You know, maybe this craziness of getting in a different plane every morning and then Zurich becomes equal to Washington and becomes equal to Bangkok almost is maybe not really um, appreciating the location where you arrive anymore. And I think there's a new appreciation um, for for feeling the travel and feeling the distance and, and, and enjoying the process. And um, of course, time is the efficiency of the time is a huge factor. Still, trains need to be efficient. But I think this is an important part of feeling what you can do in a train uh, that you can't do, do otherwise and make usage of the time. Do you see when, you, when you're doing analysis and you look at the world and, of course, you want to bring out, of course, new products, is there some special magic map, some big data chart uh, that is sitting at Siemens where you look at the world in terms of also, I guess it may be almost a level of not just rail acceptance, but rail appreciation or rail dependency? Because it's fascinating, you know, as you've said, uh, you swipe on with your mobile phone to get on the tram. And, and yes, you can, uh, you know, also use that on the boat and on the trains in between and everything. And it's globally unique, because then if you look at a very sophisticated rail country like Japan, as amazing as the trains are and everything, you can go on a journey and end up buying seven different tickets because none of the systems talk to each other. I guess what I'm getting at is, is there a an easy task when you have, let's say, a Switzerland, for example, or maybe a Netherlands as well, where you've got quite integrated rail travel. Uh, is it easier to then talk to that mark? Is it easier to convince the Dutch to jump on a night train or the Swiss versus maybe having to start to convince the Portuguese or, or, or the Spanish or, or others? Well, the first question you touched upon there was the tickets. How many tickets do I have to buy? And is it really a an overall system or is it a lot of individual systems? And this is just a question of political will. And society needs to, I guess, decide what politics say that, that they want. The easiest city I know, of course, because the city is a country there, is Singapore, where it's, it's a very clear decision by everybody. And you, you'll find 100% support in the population that the uh, metro system has to be the backbone, has to be easy to use, needs to be fully integrated with all other modes of transportation so that you can go get from A to Z with one ticket and, and convenience. In Europe, unfortunately, you have a lot of operators that consider the sales channel like in any other business. I mean, I do understand them, but uh, in any other business, they, they say the sales channel is part of our business and is a very important part of the value of our company. So they don't want to cross-sell tickets, and that makes it very, very uh, complicated. And I think politics needs to decide when they give concessions away that maybe that's not what we want. No, fully agree. So when it comes to then adoption and then and then selling, and, and again, I'll, I'll only speak of, of the experience that I know day to day here, 
you can't wait. I mean, you can't wait for the overnight network to expand out of a city like Zurich. And of course, yes, you know, Berlin is, you know, in normal times is, is well served and you can get to Hamburg and you can get to Vienna. And then we see this incredible expansion. But I guess what I'm getting at is it only makes sense uh, to do it in those places where there already is that level of let's call it sophistication and adoption, rather than saying, okay, we're going to go and try to do this between Toronto and uh, and New York, for example. No, it makes absolutely sense there also, because these are distances, if you, if you talk about ridership, uh, to connect cities like that, where it can easily be the, in, in, in an airplane. Um, you have several large systems in between, 500 kilometers you can do easily in two hours and an hour and a half from center to center. So it makes complete sense to connect these cities also. I think at the end of the day, um, also when you talk about big cities and small cities, the, the question is a, a lot of times the um, average loading of the system. You know, like even you talk Berlin or you mentioned Berlin as a positive example. Many European cities only have 20% on a normal average um, month. And you usually know these systems completely overcrowded from 7 to 8 o'clock in the morning or from, from 7 to 9 in rush hour. And then they run pretty much empty. And hence, actually, they are subsidized heavily. But I think the two big changes you need to make is, number one, we plan our trips so that the operator knows how many train seats are needed. And when you plan your trip and the train is full, then also maybe you drive, you take a train an hour later. And that brings me to the change number two, that uh, we maybe don't need these rush hours anymore to be productive in a society. Maybe we are more productive if everybody goes to the office for the three or four hours that she, he actually has a meeting or maybe go, only goes uh, five days a week. And um, if you then ask for a, a trip and you look which train is available and which seat is available and, and the metros, metros operators will buy these requests for seats and uh, just Googling your, your, your preferred time slot will know how long the train has to be so that it's uh, fully utilized. And um, it could be demand responsive. You can send more trains into the system. I think there's a lot of possibilities there that could make these systems work in a lot more places than, than what you just mentioned right now in your, your examples there. So uh, let, let's go back to the experience. I get the whole point and I love the night train because you can have a great dinner at Kronenhalle here in Zurich and then, then you can go and jump on your train and go to bed and you wake up in Hamburg, which is in a way, the way it should be. And, it, and it's incredibly efficient because you don't have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and you don't have to deal with weather and all of these other things. And if I look at, um, and this is not to give Deutsche Bahn a hard time, I have trouble sometimes walking in the carriage and I'm happy to say, I want to travel first class. I want, you know, I want privacy. I want space. I want to be efficient, all of these things. It's pretty democratic. But then if I go to Japan, it's a very different experience if I get on a Shinkansen and I get in the green car and it's comfortable and the seat, you can really recline the seat and I can have a proper sleep and the lighting is good, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess this is just, it's a wishful question in a way that first class or something beyond first class, um, that this is maybe the way things are going to go, that we're going to see proper segmentation, which also goes with the ticket price. I mean, you know, you get what you pay for. If you go to Austria and you take the railjet and you go not first class, but business class. Business class is the highest class that you will have such a feeling, I think, that you were talking about. At the end of the day, it's a question of what the operator wants to offer. And I think in Europe in general, there is still a few very large operators, but not so much liberalization on the rail. I think you'll see different concepts popping up as soon as this liberalization happens further. You did mention the night trains. I mean, you have first class suites on the night train with the two people can sleep in that suite and there's actually a large bed and another couch and you have a bathroom, basically private bathroom. So a whole different level of comfort. 
but I really think it depends on the operators. There's huge differences. You mentioned Deutsche Bahn. The idea in Germany is to offer the same ticket price the whole day around. And this actually, in the statistically, it leads to a much lower utilization rate comparing it to France or also Spain, where the ticket is cheaper when the demand is lower. So this brings in people that pay half, but they have more freedom to travel or more flexible schedule and can travel in times that are not as attractive. A lot comes with the operational concept. And in Germany right now, the concept we have is the one that you describe, and that leads to this type of train that we have. What I can tell you is why when, when we always say digitalization, digitalization, why are we excited about it? It's because actually we're not asked anymore to provide the cheapest trains. What's happening right now is that we are asked to provide a train that can offer a concession usually. There is liberalization starting and the operators ask for the best train concept for 30 years. So that includes already that energy savings go into the equation, uh, maintenance savings go into the equation, better quality goes into the equation. So it's not the cheapest initial price of the vehicle. So I, I am convinced that as this liberalization goes forward, you'll see a lot of different uh, concepts who do you see as the as the innovators? Are there any corners of the world right now that excite you that think actually in 18 months time or four years time, these operators are going to be looked at as, as real leaders? They've got something in development at the moment, which is which is going to move the meter. Because as you said, it's it's been rotary phone for a very long time. And even night trains coming back, fantastic. And okay, there's going to be nice new designs and Ubebe is going to do interesting things, no doubt. But it's not like we haven't seen night trains before. So what, what excites you right now when you look around the world? Um, if you think about long distance trains, then I think it's mainly the high speed train where I see a lot of private investors taking interest in them because there's really the belief we can beat the airplane and the market will be quite huge. And there's different concepts. So we have been approached first time in my life by operators saying, look, give us the best train you have the way you would do it. And not a specification saying this bolt must be this size and it should be stainless steel and not that steel and it should be coded by this. But give us the best train you have with the highest operating speed because we want to operate this connection and we want to get everybody from the airplane into our train. And this is the, the one facet that I can see coming up. Then there is the, the Flix trains of this world that uh, want to really be on the budget side. Then there is a lot of change coming up in the cities just because... The fascination of having the decision how you want to see the space available in your city used in the future is just gigantic. And if you ask me the one innovation I would like to see, it's probably not for me like the iPhone or singular invention like this, but, but to close my eyes and to see our cities in 10 years where you get off the street and actually they're not clogged by traffic anymore, but we have an efficient transportation system. So there's a lot of innovation coming up there and a lot of new ideas that eventually will free up space for the things we'd like to do when we visit a city, like uh, walk around, see people um, um, having a coffee here and there, and yet have efficient transportation. All of these concepts come with driverless operations, and they come with pooling a certain amount of people and bringing them efficiently from A to B. So it is somewhere in the middle of what we do today or see as public transport and private transport. So somewhere in the middle there for the last mile. Okay, I'm not going to let you off the hook, though, because you haven't told me yet. Where are those places going to be where we're going to see great things happen? Obviously, you're having some nice conversations with, with people who want uh, Siemens to build the best train ever. We saw a high-profile project between Kuala Lumpur and Singapore has now been shelved, for example. So, okay, we can take that one off the list. That's not going to happen. But what is it going to be? Is it, is it going to be a new corridor? Is it going to be a new competitor against Amtrak uh, running between Boston and Washington, D.C.? Are you excited about uh, what's going to happen in California? Just tease us a little bit. 
I think it'll happen everywhere. It'll happen in Europe. Operators are thinking about how to satisfy the demand of having twice as much high-speed rail in Europe in only nine years as then comparing it with today. You can see that the stimulus package and the money is being spent there for the first time. Germany will invest more into rail infrastructure than into streets uh, this year in the budget. So these projects will be in, in Europe. There will be projects definitely in the U.S. There is high-speed rail being discussed in many different locations. Los Angeles, Las Vegas is being discussed, for instance. I think you see them also in um, Asia or Middle East. Like you mentioned, I'm here in Cairo today because the government is discussing three high-speed lines, total 1,820 kilometers. It's a completely new project. So there will be plenty of these projects coming up. I think uh, lots of traveling to do for you. <laughs> Just before we, uh, we go, two final points. Uh, I'm curious, we've talked a lot about obviously high-speed rail and these are, these are big, heavy and of course, very long range projects, and they have to be built to last as well. So yes, there's a lot of emphasis and, and focus on that. But if I'm sitting you know, back as a listener right now and thinking about opportunity and thinking about what all the things I've heard over the last year, that of course, are, are our city centers going to be the same? Are, are we going to have you know 50% of the offices are going to get turned into apartments? Is it going to be as, as attractive? Because we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the commuter network, the people who have to travel the 45 minutes, you know, up to 90 minutes into into a city. Is this still an interesting territory for you as well? Or is it one that keeps you up at night thinking, hmm, I'm not so sure. Yes, people are going to be maybe having to come into the office once or twice, so the trains will still be needed. But we're not going to have those waves that we were talking about uh, before, that maybe it's not going to be the, the 7.30 to 8.30 rush hour, as, as we saw in the past. So is, does this become a bit of a gray zone? Or does, does Siemens also have a view on this? Everyone is talking about the hollowed out city, but you know, what does that mean for the commuter trains and the tram suddenly? Actually, the real excitement, if you ask me, about trains and the future of trains comes from the cities. Of course, uh, our new Velaro Novo high-speed train that we have offered in the UK has 30% less energy consumption, uh, runs 360 kilometers per hour, looks basically like a Ferrari on wheels. And that's that's very exciting for train spotting and for the trip, but where it really, where it really our life will change is in the cities. And to give you one example, I, I always thought of myself, I've seen urbanization happen and I've seen how cities that I didn't know how to pronounce the name or I had never heard of became much, much bigger than Berlin, which I thought is a big city. So I thought I've seen urbanization happen and it's it has happened already. But for the last 2.5 billion people to move to the cities, it took 50 years. For the next 2.5 billion people, it's believed to happen in the next 30 years. So it's actually accelerating. Organization is accelerating. And it's not only in Asia or South America or Middle East. Even if you look at London or Copenhagen or Munich, you have a growth rate of 2 3 4% every year. And you take this times uh, 10 years, you're ending up with 25 30 40% more people in 10 years. And all of this is supposed to squeeze through the centers of our inner cities. That's just impossible. I mean, we, we all know that it's impossible. So that's the one part of it, why why cities are a big part of it. The other part is that transportation on a global scale uh, is responsible for 25% of the CO2 emissions. And if we want to meet our CO2 targets, we need to drastically change everything, heating, warming of houses, cooling of houses, but also transportation. And to take the climate targets, I'm reaching out a little further now because the one thing is very little discussed, I believe, and I'd like to mention it here. If, if you think about in 20 years, zero emission, in 10 years, half emission, 
that is a gradual line that is expected. If you don't do anything and we just keep emitting as we are today, we will use up our accumulated budget in six years. And it's accumulated because once the CO2 is in the atmosphere, it takes hundreds of years to actually fall apart again and, and be dissolved. So once you've reached it, you go to zero. So we have six years. So, so you have to change things where you can change them and where you have a solution available today. And of course, trains can be 100% clean as long as you feed them with clean energy, you, you have a 100% clean system. So there's going to be a huge amount of effort but also of money, there must be money available to really change completely how we move in our cities, how we can keep moving and do this efficiently. So this is why I say in, in 10 years, I will be running in a fantastic Villaro Novo, hopefully in England or somewhere else in the world, and I'll enjoy it. But the big difference is when I, I reach the main station, I think it'll be a completely different city. It'll be clean transportation. It'd be, it must be efficient transportation. It'll free up so much more space for living and uh, strolling around as a tourist or uh, going to your office. This is what I want to want to see in my life. <laughs> Listen, you've painted just an incredibly fascinating picture and I think also a very hopeful one in terms of where the sector is going. I'm looking forward to see what pops up, what innovations are around the corner. Uh, also, when all of that new UBB, the Austrian uh, Federal Railways rolling stock, uh, starts to crisscross around Europe, and maybe we should end on that note. Uh, are, we, are we looking at sort of a 24-month horizon? I mean, of course, I've been following, obviously, when these deliveries start to happen, but is there a magic point that you see when nighttime rail travel is is really going to be, I guess, almost part of, of the daily rhythm of the leisure traveler, the business traveler? Are we, are we 36 months away? Is it is a five-year process? Well, I think night trains are a very fascinating part of rail transport, but uh, probably the backbone is going to be high speed. I think uh, if you think about two, two hours high speed in the morning between seven and nine gets you 500 kilometers far. On a night train, it's not really about how much you cover. It's more at what precise time you arrive. Even if it's 400 kilometers and you could be there at 3 o'clock in the morning, you want the train to arrive at 7 o'clock in the morning, then you have time for a shower, eat a croissant, and then you step out, stretch, uh, I don't know, in Barcelona maybe, or wherever that train brought you. But I, I do think this is probably... Um, just for the capacity reason of how many trains, how many people have you transported that particular night then from Vienna to, I don't know, to Roma, uh, maybe 500 people. It's uh, it's going to be a part of the train system. It's going to be part of regaining the fascination for train travel. Um, I'm certain I will do it. Um, this feeling to get out in a city like I just mentioned is just um, uncomparable to the experience of landing an hour outside and <laughs> fighting your way to a taxi. But from a capacity point of view, it's just going to be a part of it. Um, and the big part we need to resolve, I think, is the real high-speed connections between the cities. My thanks to the CEO of Siemens Mobility, Michael Pater, for joining us on today's edition of The Chiefs. For our next episode, we speak to the global marketing expert at the helm of another German icon, Audi. This episode of The Chiefs was produced and researched by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu with the assistance of Desiree Bandley. I'm Tyler Brulé. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.